This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthier decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Esiason. Today on the show, we talk to Chris McLeod. He is a Canadian living with cystic fibrosis and a practicing attorney. He has been a fierce advocate for patients who need access to life-sustaining medications or treatments, founding the not-for-profit organization, the Canadian Cystic Fibrosis Treatment Society, to assist in carrying out his work. He also recently released a book entitled Beating the Odds, 11 Lessons to Overcome a Health Crisis and Lead a More Resilient Life. In previous episodes of The State of Health, we've talked with guests about the short and long-term value of breakthrough and innovative medicines. Today, we're taking a trip abroad to understand how countries outside the U.S. value prescription drugs and some of the bureaucratic fights that patient groups need to wage to gain access to them. Chris has been at the tip of the spear in Canadian advocacy for drug access. Let's talk about the state of prescription drug access across the border. All right, Chris, thanks for coming to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, currently, by profession, I'm a lawyer. I also have cystic fibrosis diagnosed at the age of two, born in 1969. So back in 69, life expectancy for someone with CF was four years old. So when I've said, ridden the curve, it's, it's gone up incrementally as access to new meds. So I'm living in Toronto, practice law, and I was the first Canadian on a CFTR gene modulator, Kaleidico, which has its own story of uh, access, but we can get to that. Well, it's qu- quite, the, uh, quite the claim to fame that you're uh, the first Canadian to access Kaleidico, which for our listeners who may not be from the CF world, it's among the CFTR modulators. It's a, a protein corrector that essentially uh, fixes the defunct protein uh, at the heart of cystic fibrosis. Um, so aside from your law career, you're, you're also very active in CF advocacy in Canada, and it's really been a pretty substantial side gig from what I can tell for you. Um, yeah. And you, you started the, the, cystic fib- the Canadian Cystic Fibrosis Treatment Society. What is the purpose of the organization and what does it do for patients in Canada with CF? Great question. So I only got active with advocacy with CF when I got on the CFTR modulator and I realized there was a significant problem with access to life-saving meds. We created the organization to advocate for individuals who were in a situation where they needed somebody to speak up on their behalf, write letters, meet with whoever it might be. We've fought insurance companies, Canadian government, provincial government, whoever may get in the way of access for an individual. And uh, when I was in 2012, I'll just give you a quick backdrop to it. I had done fairly well along the way, despite hospitalizations. But when I, 2012, my lung function plummeted to below 30% on the FEV1 measurement. Went into hospital and I just, I was 42 at the time. And I just could not move it. We tried every antibiotic I was in for, in a six month period for about four of those six months in hospital. 
made it up to about 32%, four liters of oxygen a minute. Uh, doctor comes in, Dr. Tallis, phenomenal. Chris, good news and bad. I said, only good news. She said, you have a rarer form of CF. It's the Delta 551 gene type. And there's a, a company, never heard, I didn't even know about the Delta, I didn't know there were different gene modulator types. <laughs> I just knew you have CF. And it's because it was not an issue, particularly. There was no medications for specific gene types. So uh, she said, there's a company in Boston, Vertex Pharma, who's developed a medication that will normalize this gene defect, where we think it will. It's not permitted in Canada yet. They haven't even applied. They only got FDA approval recently. They'll give it to you on compassionate grounds, because otherwise you're in you're serious trouble. So I said, phenomenal. What do we have to do? Canadian government has to allow it across the border because it doesn't have a drug information number yet. It's not approved here. There's a special access program that allows you for emergency situations where it's life and death, there's no options for other drugs, and it's for short-term use. Well, we didn't meet the short-term use criteria, because once you're on Kaladico, it's permanent. It's not like a chemotherapy, which is really what the special access program is for, those short-term life-saving moments. Well, they didn't say no. They just never replied to the request. So days are going by. I'm in the hospital, and we hear nothing. That's when I knew there was a problem. So we got. We had about 35, 40 people, whether it was former premiers, politicians, premier would be the equivalent of a governor in the states, uh, members, I'll use American terms just to keep it similar. So congressmen, senators, governors, uh, all came to bat and pushed the Minister of Health federally to allow the drug into the country. And uh, ultimately, after about 12 days of this ongoing battle, the minister intervened, blamed the company, but ultimately, we got the drug in. Within 10 days, I was up to just under 60% lung function. No oxygen out of the hospital. But it was game changing. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a night and day benefit. And what you're talking about for Kaleidico was something that, you know, most patients who were able to take Kaleidico back in the early 2010s, you know, saw a very similar jump in their health. And not yeah. only a jump, but a sustained gain in yeah in lung function and quality of life. And to, I guess, bring our listeners up to speed, there's about 1,200 gene mutations. Any two combinations leads to cystic fibrosis. Uh, and there's about 5% of those, of those mutations that lead to what we call gating or residual function of the CFTR protein. And Kaleidico uh, will actually go in there and work with those specific uh, proteins that have been made by that particular combination of genes. Most people with CF, however, do not have a uh, residual function mutation and of course have needed subsequent therapies, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. And what you're sort of describing for, I guess, our American listeners is something similar to a compassionate use or expanded access program that the FDA sort of allows for unapproved drugs. Um, and the, the, the parallels, I, you know, I have some friends who have also gone through expanded access for other drugs or other uh, conditions, not just cystic fibrosis, but the, the experience that you're <clears throat> describing, Chris, with the Compassionate Grounds program in Canada is quite similar to, you know, what it takes to go through in the United States to get a drug that's not approved by the FDA. And frankly, the bureaucracy that stands in front of it is like something that uh, is, of course, on one hand, a great thing that it, because it's protecting the public from unapproved medications yeah. and medications that have not been successfully vetted. But at the same time, you know, from a patient perspective, you look at these things and you're like, wow, if this drug is existing and it's really helping people, you know, 
200 miles south of me, what's preventing me from getting that drug? And I have to yeah. imagine that's a situation that you're in and it's only magnified when you're sitting in a hospital bed. At least that's my perspective is like, oh. you know, you're sitting in a hospital bed and there's a drug going through phase two trials and somebody's benefiting from it. And you're like, why the hell can I get this drug? Yeah. Uh, it's an ethical gram that we could probably do an entire podcast on uh, aside, aside from our, our topic here. Um, but to, to educate our American listeners, until pretty recently, Canada was, was kind of lagging behind other countries with their approval of CFTR modulators. Can you talk us through how drugs are approved for use in Canada and are efficacy and safety the only factors considered? No. Sorry. Yes, I can talk about it. And no, efficacy and safety are not the only factors. The predominant factor for approval, particularly on the public reimbursement side, is cost. They deal with what they call quality, quality adjusted life year. It's a complex algorithm they use to try and determine the value for the extension of life versus the cost of the drug. But let me just run through a sort of two minute pricey on how drugs are entering or approved into Canada. First, you have to seek Health Canada approval. That's really on efficacy. They're not worried about price at all. That's efficacy and safety. Once a drug is filed fast tracked, it's 180 days. So recently, Trikafta was fast-tracked, and it worked out to about 180 days for Health Canada approval. Then it goes to the patent medicine, if it's a patented medication, it goes to the Patent Medicine Pricing Review Board, which basically ensures that drugs, the price of a drug medication listed in Canada isn't excessive or abusive because they have a patent, and no one else can compete on that drug. Current Prime Minister Trudeau has implemented amendments to those regulations that govern that body that make it very challenging for any drug that's would considered expensive, like a CFTRG modulator, drugs over 50 grand or even over 30,000 now have to pass a serious hurdle where they're trying to regulate what the price the, the availability of the medication on the free market would be, not simply what the government formularies might pay for it. And companies are saying, well, we're just not going to even file in Canada. So that's the PM, what's called the PMPRB. That regulates price for sale on the private market. Then we have, we have provinces and territories equivalent to states across the U.S. They deal, they're in charge of health care, including the public reimbursement of medication if it's going to be listed on a government plan, such as you would have Medicaid. We have equivalent of Medicaid run by provinces across the country. They, each province, can decide whether it will list or not a given medication. What the provinces have done is uh, allocate the authority to negotiate with a pharmaceutical company to a separate body called the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance. And on behalf of all provinces, that body negotiates for the price. Therein lies a significant piece of the problem. Because the, pro the provinces then say, well, it's not in our hands, it's in the PCPA's hands. And the PCPA can take years to negotiate a price, running out the patent, right? So they don't have to have the fixed prices for as long a period of time. Intersect between the PCPA and Health Canada, another agency, Canadian Advanced Drug Therapies. Basically, it's a health technology assessment body. It determines price versus efficacy and makes a recommendation to the provinces whether they negotiate or not. And by the way, Orcambi was declined at, at Cadeth based on decline because they said it doesn't have value for the dollar. Therefore, the PCPA doesn't negotiate. If this wasn't confusing enough, 
you know, I'm sure your listeners say, what the heck is going on up there? You've got PMPRB, CADF, PCPHA, all owned and delegated to by the provinces. So everyone points the finger. Well, it's not my jurisdiction. It's PCPA. It's CADF. And so nothing gets done. There's a line I love from a former U.S. president who said, what are the nine scariest words in the English language? Hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> the, it's in the Canadian context, while government can do good, the road to hell can be paved with good intentions. These bodies, which were created for positive reasons, right? You want to have reasonably priced drugs, have been utilized to actually preclude patients, or the result is precluding patients from life-saving medications. So what you're, what you're describing here is a roundabout way to approve a drug beyond just the Health Canada purview of safety and efficacy. Absolutely. Uh, it goes to pricing, Gunnar. It goes to, because everyone's got limited budgets, so they don't want to make the decision to say, hey, look, I'm choosing not to fund your drug. So they set up separate agencies like CADF. It's a not-for-profit owned by, or the only members are the deputy ministers of health. But they say, look, we can't interfere. It's a separate organization. We've got no control over that body. And you no also one, don't have to listen to that body. <laughs> so no one wants to be responsible for denying a drug is really what it comes down exactly. to. Because it becomes exactly. politicized. We'll be right back with Chris McLeod. Now, for our listeners... Uh, you know, transparency with our listeners. I have been somebody who's been extraordinarily critical of the quality, the quality adjusted life here methodology, simply because I think it doesn't uh, paint the NPV curve, the net present value curve fairly for rare disease drugs uh, for a few reasons. One, uh, the, the multiplier in the quality algorithm is sort of like a subjective quality of life metric that attempts to be standardized across a number of different diseases. And that's a little bit of a complex thought and something I've got a great deal of, uh, of contention with and we're just not going to get into it. But the other problem as well, and it sounds like this is something that you sort of touched on here, is that every patented drug really has a lifetime value of, uh, of revenue under the patent before it expires. So you almost described what I amount, what I consider to be a little bit of a conflict of interest from the part of the regulator, wherein they can delay the process to go further and further down the NPV curve until the drug patent or exclusivity period expires. Is that is that sort of a tactic or a delay stall tactic used by the regulator in this case? Oh, without a doubt, their Kaleidico came first submitted to Health Canada in 2012. We didn't get public. It was a very tough fight with Maddie Vanstone and Beth Vanstone leading the charge in Ontario, where we ultimately um, had the deal close in 2014. And, and then once the years, so it's basically oh, years, your years. pause from when approved to when it was finally offered to patients. And as you, as anyone who can sort of visualize what an NPV curve looks like. Two fewer years on that curve can make anything seem cost effective in in any sort of uh, any sort of mathematical formula. It's not it's not hard math to do, but I, the the true cost of that delay is of course the patient life. Right, That's anyone right. living with a progressive illness can get sicker and has a harder time recovering from the, that progression with a delay. Well, and by the way, they only covered in 2014 Kaladico for use in the Delta 551 population. 
there are seven or nine other gene variants that it works equally well for that were only covered years later in 20, I think it was 2020. So, and by the way, as you know, the difference between being well and not well when you've got CF, even if you're on a CFTR modulator, is morning to evening. I could be great on Monday, but I may be in a hospital room uh, you know, four days later. And if you're on with a serious infection, you need a gene modulator to help at least get you in the game. It's not a cure. In my case, I still take casein three times a day, palmozyme, enzymes. If there's a serious exacerbation, I'll still go into the hospital, which is rare now. I was in the hospital a month and a half ago for three weeks. Uh, but because of the CFTR modulator, I'm 51, I was out in three weeks and I worked while I was in the hospital. So you're back in the game, you're back on the ice with these modulators. It gives you that added steam to close the deal. And that's why it's so critical we get everyone access. As a, as a former uh, high school hockey coach, I appreciate the Canadian <laughs> hockey analogy in the middle of a health policy discussion. Uh, but, but, but sort of moving forward here, it's my understanding that uh, your advocacy, uh, your organization's advocacy has really been a, a, in a deadlock with the PMPRB in some ways. Um, yeah. in, in the communications plan dated this past February, uh, the PMPRB accused patient organizations of spreading, quote, disinformation about their methods. And then you even went as far as penning a letter to the Office of the Auditor General of Canada. I'm excited to hear what that office actually does, calling for a thorough investigation into the regulator, the PMPRB, and suggested that they likely have a clear bias in their tactics. This is all pretty serious stuff. What happened and where are we now? And for our listeners, I'm going to date the day that we are recording this podcast, which is July 6th. It's going to be released a little later in the month. So on July 6th, where are we and what happened between your advocacy organization and the PNPRB? Okay. So the Patent Medicine Pricing Review Board is actually a quasi-judicial body. It acts as a effectively putting in simple terms, a judge to make a decision as to whether or not those pharma, uh, brand name pharma drugs coming into the country have excess pricing or not. The regulations that were amended to make it far more than just an excess price body, but a price regulatory body, uh, were to come in effect July 1, 2021. This memo came out, or at least we became aware of it, May 2021. And in it, they say that the CF community in particular is misleading the public about uh, the PMPRB regs and the debate and what the, the regulations are about. Uh, as a quasi-judicial body, they have to be neutral and objective. Their job is not to participate in the debate of what legislation is. That's to happen in, the, in Parliament, where you're equal to your Congress or the Senate, not for a quasi-judicial body whose job They've been delegated power by the government to make rulings and findings. They cannot then participate in that public debate. They can help formulate some policy, but setting that aside, so where are we now? The regulations have been stayed for another six months, presumably to allow better consultation with patients and the pharmaceutical industry to make this right. I personally would like to see these amendments disbanded as being unconstitutional. We have a constitutional challenge in the province of Quebec. Uh, we're at the Quebec Court of Appeal this fall. The Quebec government has intervened to also challenge these regulations as unconstitutional. So I think we'll succeed there. 
Uh, but it's, uh, these are troubling, challenging times with the PMPRB. So we have one piece of litigation. We're contemplating a second, which would be a charter challenge in the province of Ontario, uh, saying that the, the regulations not only are unconstitutional from a division of powers perspective, as between, and again, I'll use American terms, between the state and the federal government, you have division of powers of what can a state do? And the federal government can't trench on state authority. Canada, the federal government can't trench on provincial authority. Pro provinces have control over health care by regulating drugs out of existence, the pricing. They're it, precluding the provincial government's ability to provide meaningful health care to patients. This is the, one argument. The second we're looking at is that Section 7 of the Charter of Rights in Canada, Rights and Freedoms, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person will also be impeded by these rigs. And that's another action we're contemplating. And so, these regulations, you're starting to cut in, but you're right. The regulations you're talking about are, in your mind, sort of unfairly considering drugs for rare disease coverage is what is really kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and precluding access from its entry into the country. Our view is pricing should be negotiated between the parties. The provinces want to list something on Medicaid. By term, I'm going to interchange U.S. and Canadian terms. We don't have Medicaid, but if the provinces want to list something for Medicaid, then negotiate a hard price with the company. But don't say we're regulating your ability to even enter our country by telling you the low price. And in the case of rare disease drugs, they're talking about 70, 80, 90 percent price reductions just to enter the market. And they say, you must disclose to the rest of the world that you are now in Canada paying 90% price reduction. With Kaleidico, by the way, they wanted a 98% price reduction. Well, companies are just saying, okay, you know what, we'll just take a pass. You're 2% of the global market, Canada. Canada, 40 million, is the size of the state of California by population. So companies are saying, you know what, we'll wait till the patent, your patents run out and uh, We'll just deal with it later, or you can ask for it on special access. And I mean, so what you're describing is really like a pretty significant drug access issue in yeah. Canada. Um, is Trikafta available? I mean, from what I understand, there's been some success with your organization's work. Is is it available for patients? Now it will. Well, it looks like it will be. So. First of all, there's two other, CF Get Loud has done a phenomenal job as sort of a movement in Canada activating CF community. CF Canada is the charity and both CF Canada, CF Get Loud uh, and everyone across the country really leaned in and did a phenomenal job pressuring. So Trikafta, I fully expect will be made available broadly across the board. So when Trikafta was filed uh, six months ago, now has Health Canada approval. We just found out last week or the week before the PCPA has concluded a price that will include Trikafta or Cambi and Coladico. Now provinces have the chance and the choice to list it on their provincial formularies. So frankly, I think that we will have access to the gene modulator Trikafta potentially by the end of the year in many provinces. So we're very fortunate. That took some heavy lifting from the CF patients and their families, and they've all done a great job. The State of Health, we'll be right back. What is the legacy, I guess, of this sort of advocacy struggle? You know, I think everyone realizes that 
there's no sort of world where there's unlimited funding for, you know, healthcare, whether it's drugs or, you know, hospitalizations or things like that. But it, it does need to be said that, you know, you can't just spend, 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 spend. There has to be sort of a limit. And that's, I think, what the patenting process does attempt to do, uh, where drugs will hit their patent cliffs. But in the meantime, uh, it, do you think there's sort of like a predatory behavior on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry? Does it seem like the patient communities are getting too close to the pharmaceutical industry? Or is, are patients sort of like pawns in the middle of this big giant game that has become politicized, but probably shouldn't be politicized in the future? Well, the people politicizing it are the politicians and the government. <laughs> I don't think it's pharma companies are so conservative and so cautious. Uh, it's almost impossible to become too cozy with them. Like they, I have, if I could sue a pharma company, actually I've got a class action against about half a dozen professionally, nothing to do with CF, pharmaceutical companies. So if there's a potential to sue, that's fine. We'll take it if it results in a good end. But frankly, I've found a lot of pharmaceutical companies relatively easy to deal with because at least they'll take your call and respond to correspondence. Government. They're, it's such a bureaucratic morass. You have, it's impossible virtually to get stuff done. We did see a break in the game where it looks like we may get access and access quickly to Trikafta. But um, you know, patients will work with whoever we have to work with to make sure we get access. If it's government, if it's whether it's an insurance provider, government, or a pharmaceutical company, uh, good. We'll work with everyone. Now, I've said to government, I'd love to hold a press conference with the government <laughs> and say, we're now making this medication available. Because once you give someone the medication, they're back in the workforce. They're creating jobs. They're creating opportunity. There's a churn effect with every able-bodied individual who you can get back on the ice. And quite frankly, it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's frustrating, but uh, you know, we're getting there in Canada for sure on CFTR gene therapies. Mm -hmm. But what about the next iteration after Trikafta? Uh, for example, I'm not eligible for Trikafta. I have the 551 and some other gene. So I've got to wait to whatever the drug is after Trikafta. <clears throat> and if these regs go through, if you need something else, it doesn't cover everyone. We will be potentially the back of the line, Canada, for the access. And I, I guess when these conversations always come up, I always say it's not so much about this drug, it's about the next drug and how yeah. painful it was to get to that point, right? At what point does it no longer become worth it for the time and effort to try to go through these bureaucratic hoops, especially moving forward when you, you know, presumably have a huge part of the patient population feeling good on, on whatever, you know, breakthrough drug. Is there still the same effort and emphasis to continue to move the needle forward uh, when the, you know, the, the problems become less and less dire as, as collective health improves, you know, that that's one thing that sort of lingers in the background. And you would of course hope, and that's what our organizations do. We stand here, we stand on the wall to continue to say, yes, we yeah. will continue to fight that fight because we have to, because we've done it once before and we've won, we will continue to do so. Oh yeah. This will be no patient left behind, no person left behind, period, full stop. When I got on Kaleidico, there was 169 people that would be eligible in Canada for it. Well, if you get a access to a medication and it, it saves your life and you get to shore, think of it as there's a ship sinking offshore, 169 people on it. You get on a lifeboat and you're on shore, but the boat's still sinking. You got a responsibility I mean, to save everyone else. Well, exactly. 100%. I mean, you're in this game, whether you want to be or not, you know, it's no, it's not really a choice. 
It's an obligation. And that's what you've seen the response across the country by CF patients mm -hmm. and their families to make sure that no one's left behind. Absolutely. So we're getting there. Yeah, and I think I think there's something to be part of a rare disease community. You know, it's one of those things where everyone sort of knows everyone. Um, I always kind of say maybe it's a little bit of a morbid joke, but uh, the world is only as small as our rare disease allows it to be. Uh, that's that's kind of uh, I think the truth uh, in, in every single country that's going through these issues. So thanks for the uh, the the tour through Canadian health policy, and I definitely appreciate that. But I, I want to give you a chance to talk about your book that you just wrote, uh, Beating the Odds, 11 Reasons to Overcome a Health Crisis and uh, 11 Lessons, rather, to Overcome a Health Crisis and Lead a More Resilient Life. Uh, what's, what are you hoping people learn from it and where, where did the motivation uh, come from to write the book? Back when I was in uh, 2012, in that dark period where it was less than 30%, four liters, I was doing, I've always been a big fan and reading self-help books, motivational books. I have YouTube videos going all the time. This is 2012 in my hospital room. And uh, I was still working at my firm at the time. And one doctor resident said, geez, Chris, you've got a pretty good perspective on this. Uh, what's your secret recipe? So I just quickly jotted down 11 lessons. And I accepted, I said, someday I've got to put that into a booklet. It wasn't really supposed to, I wanted it to be a booklet that if you're sick, you're lying down, what are the lessons you can look to? And some anecdotes I can share that can hopefully help get you through this hurdle. So ultimately during COVID, I decided to put it down because everyone now was talking about a health crisis <laughs> and the challenges inherent with that. You think that COVID is eerily similar to some extent with CF, you know, stay six feet apart. Um, it affects your lungs and your breathing. People are going on to ventilators. And so to the extent that we've had to stay six feet apart, you go to a CF clinic in Canada, you're wearing a mask. You know, there's that one particularly bad bug in the CF world. And when you're on a ward, it's a CF ward, there's one watch, oh, use, let's use the word COVID for the CF bug, okay? Just for people's understanding of it. There's a COVID washroom and a, a positive COVID washroom and a non-COVID washroom for showers, right? And you're in the hallway and you've got to make sure you kind of steer clear. And uh, we're always worried about cross-infection. So I'm going to put down my 11 lessons, share some anecdotes. Okay, so here's a copy of the book. And in it, I've got some pictures. So this is the contrast, just from a health perspective. When I was, here's a picture of me, four liters of oxygen a minute, St. Mike's Hospital, okay, 2012. Pan to, I ended up in hospitalization on April 21st of this year, 2021. End up in the same room, by chance, as that room. And I get the last edition of the book from my editor. Well, I'm sitting in the same chair as you saw. But with COVID restrictions, no one's allowed in the room and I'm not allowed out for the 20 days I was there. They said, well, Chris, you need a picture for the book. I said, well, I can't get one. He said, well, just take a selfie and email it to me. So I did. The back of the book, that picture, is me in the same room huh. on the same chair as up with four liters of oxygen. And the whiteboard, you can kind of see in the backdrop of that picture. You can see it. But on my whiteboard in 2012, I always write the goal, my goal on the whiteboard. Mm -hmm. I wipe, it was at the time 165 weight, 65% lung function two of which I hadn't had, never had 165 at the time. 
65 I'd only had on the way down. <laughs> and then I was trying to claw my way back up. So that's sort of the genesis was, what are the 11 lessons on perspective and attitude that you can bring to bear when you're facing a health challenge? So much that's written is on business and sports. But when you're, you know, you don't have control of what your blood results are going to be. You know, when you've got damage to the lungs, you can, but you, you can, there's only so much you can do to repair damaged lung tissue. But there is something you can bring. You can control your response to the situation. So I go through, you know, get up, dress up, show up. Even if you have to go right back to bed, there's power in controlling your response to situations. Have an attitude of gratitude. Um, you know, never give up. Live in day-tight compartments. Power of prayer. Like I've just the uh, so those eleven lessons, and then I give anecdotes from patients I've known over the years, uh, some of whom passed but had phenomenal attitudes. Talk about one young guy named Courtney. He passed away at eight years old, but he had more attitude and great perspective. I learned a lot from him. Ron Moore, first Canadian to run with CF, to run the Penticton Ironman. He passed, but uh, to run in the Ironman, you imagine, uh, and do so as CF, it was phenomenal at the time. So um, some of the other lessons, power of smiling and laughing in a hospital situation. I always say it's rich material for Seinfeld in a hospital, <laughs> especially when you have a roommate. The <laughs> uh, what are some of the others? I've got this expression I always use, never better. I talk about the philosophy behind never better. Dream big, write it down. I'm big on write down your goals so everyone knows what they are and make them unrealistic. No one ever did anything great with a realistic goal, right? I mean, the four mile minute, four minute mile was a run after no one thought it could ever be done. And once someone broke the barrier, now we've had a thousand people do a four minute mile. So that's kind of the essence of the book. And the, the truth is, I, I think living with any sort of, you know, whether a rare disease, disability is, is something that is going to offer a great deal of perspective on, on all parts of life. You know, I think yeah. uh, the one thing that I've always felt is that it provides a medium for very hands-on learning um living with cf does yeah. and there's no greater teacher than sitting in a hospital bed watching the world spin outside the window without you and i think a lot of people are learning that uh over the last or you at least would hope that a lot of people are learning that uh over the last you know year as we've all sort of been stuck inside our homes and watching the world spin outside our windows um so we're, we're sort of towards the end here but i want to give you a last word um you're you're from an older generation of people with cf uh, which yeah. is uh, no comment on your age, but it's definitely a great success story in and of itself. And by all counts, you've had a successful career. Um, you know, what's the trick to managing a condition like CF and holding on to um, every great thing that comes along with age? Yeah, one of the, at least with my approaches, everyone's got a different approach and there's many that are valid across the board. Mine was to set goals and objectives that are hard and large, hard to reach and bigger than life, and let CF be a minuscule piece of it. And then, you know, it becomes like an afterthought. You still have to do your treatments and don't ignore treatments, but never let it get in the way. There's a proverb, it's a proverb or an old expression. 
about a woman who had a terrible loss, and she went to, uh, I think it was a Chinese proverb, and she went to a wise person, who, and he said, well, what can I do? I've got to get rid of this. He said, find a mustard seed from a home that's had no trouble. She goes to the first house, mansion, knocks on the door. You have a mustard seed. Looks like you haven't had any problems. They start giving you a litany of problems in the house. So she says, well, I could help. And she keeps going, and she found out that the solution was helping others was the best guide to getting rid of her own sorrows, right? And if, regardless of what you do, make things that are a challenge. So CF is a challenge. Keep it as an absolute sideline. Acknowledge it, address it, never dwell on it. So that's the essence, um, sort of the approach I've taken. And, uh, you know, probably I crossed the line and go too far to focusing on everything else and ignore the health challenges. Uh, listen, I wouldn't say to follow everything I do, necessarily. <laughs> but uh, that's generally the approach I've taken. And with my profession as a lawyer, it affords me to, uh, I can work sitting down, right? I can work in a hospital room, especially now with Zoom. You can do, uh, I had two signs on my last visit to the hospital. Meeting in progress, court in progress. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And that's it, a blessing. It's a blessing. I've it, it is amazing what technology has offered. And I hope that one, and something we've talked about on the podcast before, but I hope that one, like I said, the pandemic is more is a more accessible workplace, especially for people with cystic fibrosis and disabilities and other rare diseases. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of the kind of thing we've been asking for for a long, long time. Then as soon as everybody else faces it, all of a sudden yeah. the world becomes a lot more accessible. Uh, yeah. So I'm hoping that's one thing that does not go away uh, as, as we move forward. But Chris, thanks for coming on the show and uh, really appreciate the conversation today. Thanks for having me. And uh, always great to uh, talk to people about challenges and opportunities for sure. With CF. That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at g 17 Esiason, and you can check out my website at GunnarEsiason.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Chris McLeod for today's interview. You can get a copy of Chris's book, Beating the Odds, 11 Lessons to Overcome the Health Crisis and Lead a More Resilient Life at www.beatingtheodds.ca. The State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. See you next week.